It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be speaking to you men like this. Uh, it's an honor that I feel very, very unworthy of and inadequate for. But uh, my turn has come round as the junior member of the faculty. And uh, although it has been put off uh, at least once, uh, you can run but you can't hide. And so here we are uh, at the conference this year. Uh, I can relate to what Yuski was saying about Davy Sutherland um, since last minister's conference. Possibly as he was bidding me farewell, the, he was already talking about this year's conference. And uh, has been very encouraging, I have to say, in all of the uh, advice and everything that he's given me about it. I uh, can't say the same thing for Paul Wright, <laughs> uh, who sent an email, was it just last week, Paul? Yes, a very kind email saying, praying for, praying for you as you tweak your talks, just as I was starting into writing the first one, I started to panic a little bit, I was meant to be tweaking and polishing at that, at that stage, but... Um, anyway, they're done now, or mostly done, so um, thanks Paul for your encouragement. Guarding the heart in ministry, uh, or as Robert Robb might describe it, pastoral cardiology. Uh, I was tempted to take that as the title. Um, Robert did some very good, very excellent talks at Castle Wellen quite a few years ago now at the Castle Wellen Conference on Biblical Cardiology. Uh, I still have my CDs of those. I don't know if they're available anywhere else, but they're well worth listening to, and uh, I find them very helpful. Uh, I'm not just saying that because you said you were going to giving me credit for something on Sabbath uh, in a sermon on Revelation. Uh, but let's read together, first of all, from Proverbs chapter 4. Just the, the last few verses of Proverbs 4, we're going to be taking as our theme text for the conference, Proverbs 4, verse 23. Uh, this really is, uh, the, the four talks that I'm going to give are really just a, an extended sermon on Proverbs 4, 23. Um, but let's just read these verses first of all to see the context of them. Proverbs 4, verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forwards and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. I don't know if you've ever been asked for one piece of advice that you would give to men starting in the ministry. That's the kind of question that ministers tend to dread, isn't it? What is the, the one book that you would say we must read? What is the one verse? What is the one piece of advice? But my answer to that question has always been the same. 
not just to men who are starting in the ministry, but to men who have been in the ministry for 10 years or 30 years or 50 years. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That is, I think, the single most important and helpful piece of advice that we can give to one another uh, in the ministry, uh, to keep reminding ourselves of and to give to anyone as they start out in the ministry or come towards the end of the ministry. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. As your heart is, so is your ministry. Robert Murray McShane said, My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And as I've reflected uh, over the years that I've been a minister, uh, 21 years now, I've seen the truth of that coming home more and more. And it seems to me that it resonates and chimes and, and just really is another way of saying Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. We could adopt the well-known axiom in ministry and put it like this. The heart of the minister is the heart of his ministry. Nothing else compensates for the heart. It doesn't matter what gifts you have. It doesn't matter what crowds flock to hear your preaching. It doesn't matter how much learning you accumulate and possess. It doesn't matter how much success you have in the ministry. The heart of the minister is the heart of your ministry. Uh, I've lost count of the, the number of men that quote this and say this. It goes back, I think, at least to Thomas Watson. I've found it in J.C. Ryle and a number of other writers since that. The main thing in religion is the heart. The heart is the main thing in religion. And for that reason, I've certainly felt overwhelmed by this subject. Because by definition, guarding the heart uh, includes just about everything in religion. Because it is the main thing in religion, uh, it, it covers, it touches on everything. And, and as I looked around my, my study, every book on the shelf seemed to be relevant in one way or another to this subject. And there are so many things that could be said under this topic. And so what I've tried to do is to focus completely selfishly on the things that I thought would be most useful for me, uh, the things that I thought I needed to hear on this. And I hope that means that they will be useful for most of you as well. It's been a very searching subject. It's been a very uncomfortable thing to study deeply. Uh, I've been painfully aware of the coldness of my own heart and the weakness of my own heart as I've prepared this conference. In, in the pride of my heart, I'll confess that to you, I, I wanted to give the four talks that will be the four definitive talks for all time on guarding the heart for a pastor, that the, the standard go-to guide that everybody will recommend. You must listen to these talks uh, surely I'm not the only person that thinks that way about messages that they preach. And yet, like everything in our hearts, it's a mixture, isn't it, of good and bad motivation there. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, later in the conference. Uh, there's a sense in which it's right that we want to do our best. We're, we're called to do our best. 
Uh, we want to do things that will be useful and fruitful for uh, God's people and the work of the kingdom. And yet, even right there, when I want to do good, evil is there with me uh, and there's pride as well. But I hope that th this will be helpful nonetheless. The heart is a vast country to explore. And, and obviously I can't give an exhaustive uh, treatment of the subject. So what, what I've settled for instead are things that I think will be suggestive, hopefully, that, that will give us the, the tools, as it were, that, that will prime the pump for us to do better at understanding our hearts and guarding our hearts. Uh, my hope and prayer is that we'll go away from the conference much more keenly aware of our hearts and the absolute priority of guarding our hearts as pastors. And that whatever else we strive to be and to do in our ministry, this will be at the top of our list. Uh, above all else, we can translate it, keep your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. I've changed the, the, the talk titles a little bit from the way they were advertised. Uh, tonight is What is the Heart? And then tomorrow morning, Why Guard the Heart? And then the last two uh, will be on how we guard the heart. Uh, but the first of those will be about assessing our hearts. And then the second, sanctifying our hearts. So that's uh, where I'm hoping to go over these couple of days. So what is the heart then, first of all? Let me say three things uh, about the heart. First of all, it is fundamental. The heart is fundamental. Uh, we need to take time, don't we, to understand clearly and precisely what it is we're talking about when we talk about the heart. Uh, it's one of those words that we use all the time. Scripture uses it all the time. But what does it actually mean? What are we referring to when we talk about the heart? The Hebrew word lev or levav, it comes 850 times in the Old Testament. And then cardia, 160 times in the New Testament. And both Old Testament and New Testament hardly ever use those words to talk about the physical organ, uh, the, the pump that is inside our bodies. Uh, almost never is it used of the physical heart in our bodies. It's always, or almost always, uh, an imagery for something. Uh, the theological word book of the Old Testament describes it like this. I think this is a very good uh, overarching definition. The heart is the richest, most all-encompassing biblical term for the totality of man's inner nature. The richest, most all-encompassing term for the totality of man's inner nature. All the hidden, immaterial components of a person's being. Man's inner nature. The activities of the soul are normally divided into three categories or distinguished into three broad categories. And you'll be familiar with these. The mind and the affections and the will. And the heart refers to all three. The heart embraces all of these. 
Uh, now, these three broad categories encompass then a very wide range of activities, the, the totality of a man's inner nature. Uh, so let me try and show you that uh, by giving you a, a fairly comprehensive overview of the things that the Bible says the heart does. So try to, to, to just get a sense of the cumulative force and the variety of all of this, the totality of a man's inner life, the mind, the affections, and the will. First of all, the mind. This is cognitive activity, our thinking. Uh, so wisdom and understanding are seated in the heart. The heart, according to the Bible, conceals and discerns, the heart instructs and meditates and muses, the heart perceives and plans and plots and ponders and thinks and weighs. These are all things the Bible says that we do in our hearts, we do with our hearts. Uh, the conscience is also located uh, in the mind. Uh, it it's also has relevance to the will as well, but uh, the conscience, the sense of right and wrong, the knowledge, that innate knowledge that we have of what is right and what is wrong, that too is in the heart, is in the mind. And then there are the affections. What do we mean by the affections? Uh, sometimes people talk about the mind, the emotions, and the will, but affections is the better term because it's broader than the emotions. The affections include the emotions, they include our feelings, but it's more than that. Uh, the affections are our emotions, our longings, our desires, our revulsions. All of those things are included in, in what the Bible means by the heart. Uh, and I, this all might seem a little bit technical and, and not very interesting, but I hope we'll see just how practical all of this is uh, in due course. So the heart, according to the Bible, aches. It cherishes. It desires. The heart despairs. The heart despises. The heart grieves and hates and fears. The heart laments, the heart loves, the heart lusts, the heart rages, it rejoices, it resents, it sinks, it trembles. According to the Bible, we boast with the heart, we crave with the heart, the heart faints, the heart forgives, the heart gives. According to the Bible, the heart can respond it can slander, it can steal, it can stray. And all of those things, again, just try to just feel the cumulative weight of all of this. That's the affections. If you ever are wondering what the affections are, that's a good, that list gives you a pretty good sense of what's included in the affections. And the heart includes the affections. So the mind, the affections, and then the will because the heart is also the seat of the will. Our choices, our decisions, and our actions. Again, the heart chooses, the heart decides, the heart directs 
our actions. Deciding something in the Bible uh, is setting the heart. 2 Chronicles 12, 14. Not of my heart is a way of saying not of my will in Numbers 16, 28. Righteousness is integrity of heart in Genesis 20, verse 5. The mind, the affections, the will. When we talk about the heart, that's what we're talking about. All of that is what we're talking about. There's a whole raft of adjectives used about the heart which reflect these three categories. So the heart can be adulterous or arrogant. The heart can be bitter or blameless or broken. It can be calloused and contrite, crushed, darkened, evil, faithful, fearful, foolish, hard, humble, proud, pure, sick, steadfast, unfeeling, wise, wounded. I did say it was a pretty comprehensive list. Uh, all of this the heart is capable of. Uh, this, this is the, the kind of activity that goes on within the hearts of every human being. Sometimes, in fact, the heart is used as a synonym for the person, for the whole person. It's just another way of saying the self. So in Exodus 9, 14, for example, the plagues were sent on Pharaoh's heart, which is really just another way of saying that they were sent on Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is synonymous with Pharaoh himself. In Genesis 18, verse 5, Abraham uh, invites his three guests to refresh their hearts. In other words, to refresh themselves. Perhaps the best example of this is in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, where Peter talks about the hidden person of the heart. It's a very good phrase for understanding the heart. The hidden person of the heart. It's not what you say. It's not what you do that determines who you are. It is the heart and I'm sure that instantly there are verses that are coming to your mind that make that point. Jesus says that our words and our actions are what? They are the overflow of what is in our hearts. Luke 6:45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. Why? For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The mind, the affections, the will, the whole person, that's what the heart represents in the Bible. And because the heart represents all of these different activities of the inner life, the totality of man's inner nature, that means it's fundamental to everything else. And that's why the heading is fundamental. Uh, we've got to it at last. The heart is fundamental to everything else. Just in the same way that the physical organ of the heart is fundamental to the health of the whole body, so too, in Scripture, the heart is central to the whole person. It's the source of who we are and all that we do. From it flow the springs of life. Literally, 
the Hebrew in Proverbs 4.23 is, from it are the goings out of life. That's true of our physical heart. The goings out of life come from it. The health of all the other parts of our bodies depends on the health of our hearts. So that physically, if the heart is in bad shape, then the legs and the arms will be tired and our speech will be breathless and our eyesight will be affected by dizziness because the heart is the source of all these things in a way that the feet or the eyes are not. So there's Mark who's only got one eye that works, but he can swim harder and faster than any of the rest of us because his heart is strong. And that's, that's the point. The heart is the central thing. It's the fundamental thing. It affects the health of everything else. The heart is the control center of the whole person. It is the real you. That's why it's so important that we think about it. And the real you, just like your physical heart, is hidden. It's invisible. It's secret. The real you is not the face that you present to the world outside. It's not even the face that we present to our family at home, although they see more of the real you than anyone else. It's what we are in our hearts. The things that we think, the things that we feel, the things that we choose and decide and want that actually nobody else ever sees or knows about. The heart is the real you. And so the battle for holiness is fought here in our hearts first. It's won or lost in the heart, in the desires, the will, the thoughts, the imagination, the fantasy, the conscience. The heart is the source of all that we are and do as men as husbands, as fathers, as sons, as friends, and especially, as we're going to be concentrating on in our conference, as pastors. And it's just so important, isn't it, that we get that and that we understand that and we think through the implications of that and we keep reminding ourselves of that. Who and what you are as a pastor is not about the sermons that you preach and all the visits that you do and the reputation that you have. It's not about the hours and hours and hours of hard work. It's not about your gifts. It's not about your success. It's not about the number of people that you bring to Christ. Who you are as a pastor, what you are as a pastor, is all about your heart, your secret inner life that's hidden from view. Al Martin, based on 50 plus years of pastoral experience, put it like this. He said, the greatest struggles you will ever face in ministry, in the seasons of barrenness and in the most fruitful seasons, will be in the deepest caverns of your heart.
where only you and God traverse. The deepest caverns of your heart where only you and God traverse. It's all about what we are in our hearts. It's not about what we do. Remember Jesus' terrifying words in Matthew seven twenty-two: Many will say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are men who said and did all kinds of spectacular things, amazing things, many mighty works, and they're cast into hell because their hearts were not right. <coughs> the heart is fundamental. And so when the Lord calls us to do something from the heart or with all our heart, this is, what he, this is what it means. It doesn't just mean that we don't do it externally. That, that's obvious. Of course we don't just do it externally. But to do something from the heart, it means that we do it with the whole range of faculties of the inner man. Uh, the, the totality of our inner nature. The mind and the affections and the will. That's what it means to do something with the heart, with the whole heart. Not just a bit of the heart, but with a, a whole heart. It's not enough that we, that we do things with our minds. It's not enough that we do things just with the affections. It's not enough that we do something just because we're not compelled in some way. We've got to do it with all our mind and all our affections and all our will working harmoniously together. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Uh, we're told, for example, in Deuteronomy 11:13 and Colossians 3:23, to serve the Lord with all our heart. So what does it look like to serve the Lord with all the heart? Well, it means that we don't just mentally affirm with our minds that this duty, whatever it is we're being called to do by the Lord, that it's right and that it's appropriate. It's not enough to just affirm that with our heads, with our minds, but do it grudgingly. We've got to do it with our minds and our affections and our will. It's not enough to serve the Lord with our emotions only. There are plenty of Christians and they serve the Lord with their emotions. They're very enthusiastic about serving the Lord, but they're not serving the Lord with their mind. They have no clue about what it means to serve the Lord. And it's not enough that we serve the Lord by a kind of grim forcing of the will. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. The heart decides. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So whatever we do, serving the Lord, we're to do it with our whole heart, mind, affections, will. We're to believe with the heart with the mind, with the affections, and with the will. So the devil believes, but he only believes in the mind. 
His theology, for the most part, is perfectly orthodox. James tells us that, doesn't he, in James 2.19. But then the parable of the sower talks about the seed on the rocky soil, and it describes those who believe, not just with their minds, but also with their affections. They respond to the gospel enthusiastically, with great joy. But it's clear from the parable that that's not enough. Because believing with the heart means that we believe with the mind and the affections and the will. It means putting our trust in Jesus Christ and surrendering our life to his lordship. Saying to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And we repent from the heart. I mean, we could go on and on and on all through Scripture, taking everything that we're called to do and show how we've got to do it with the whole heart, mind, affections, and wills. But here's another example, and we'll come back to this in another talk. Repentance involves the mind. We've got to repent with our minds. First stage of repentance is recognition of sin, understanding the full, horrible dimensions of what we've done wrong. Seeing and understanding that this is wrong because it's an offense against God. And yet you, you, could, you could acknowledge that, couldn't you? You could, you could accept that without the affections being involved. Without any remorse, without any grief. That's not enough. We've got to repent with the heart. Not just with the mind, but with the affections. Paul talks though, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians 7 about worldly sorrow that involves the mind and the affections, but it still falls short of being true repentance. And that's because the will isn't involved. True repentance that comes from the heart involves the will. There's got to be not just recognition of sin, not just remorse for sin, but a resolution to change, to turn from <coughs> sin to righteousness. That's what the heart is, the mind, the affections, the will, fundamental to everything that we do. All that we do is meant to be done from the heart, with the heart. And it's helpful, I think, to take time over that right at the start uh, of our conference to understand precisely what the heart is so that we can then monitor it more accurately. Because if we don't really know what it is we're meant to look at, it's not going to help us when it comes to monitoring our hearts. If we're not going to be able to guard our hearts if we don't know what exactly it is that we're supposed to be guarding. If we're vague in our understanding of the heart, then we'll be vague in our understanding of how to guard it. More of that in the third talk. So, fundamental. Then, secondly, the heart is fallen. The heart is fallen. Uh, ever since the fall, the human heart, the source, as we've just seen, of all that we do and say and think and choose and feel, etc., 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 our heart is polluted with the toxic poison of sin. Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so as we know, the Lord sends the flood to punish 
men's evil hearts. But the, but the flood doesn't change the evil heart of man because we read in Genesis 8:21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That hadn't changed. The flood hadn't washed away the, the, the toxic poison of sin. It's still there in the human heart, even as we know in Noah's heart very soon after coming out of the ark. It, it manifests itself and then also uh, in uh, the sin of uh, his youngest son. The natural fallen heart has a boundless capacity for self-deception. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Forget about understanding the inner life of another human being. We can't even understand our own hearts, can we? Isn't that the case? Haven't you discovered that? Owen says in Indwelling Sin, Many there are that know not their hearts as to their general bent and disposition, whether it be good or bad, sincere and sound, or corrupt and not. But no one knows all the secret intrigues, the windings and turnings of his own heart. No one knows his own heart. It is unsearchable. And haven't you proved that in your own experience? How often have you been surprised by yourself? Thoughts that come to mind unbidden that you are shocked and repulsed by. And you, you say to yourself, where did that come from? Or, or words that, that pass out of your mouth displaying a horrible sewer of pride and envy and anger inside us that just suddenly boils up and overflows. You know how fickle we are. One day we're on top of the world, cheerful and happy, and then the next day we're in total despair for no apparent reason. We don't understand ourselves. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. The Bible says that our hearts are uncircumcised. In other words, they're unclean, they're defiled, they're sinful. Or Ezekiel 11.19 describes our hearts as stony by nature. In other words, they're hard, they're unyielding. Nothing softens them. Afflictions don't soften them. Mercies don't soften them. Disappointments and failures, sermon after sermon, pleading, tears, nothing softens them. They're hard as stone. They're cold. Cold as stone. There's no feeling in them at all. 
Ryle uh, uses the example of a marble statue in church. Well, I suppose he was used to seeing those maybe more than we are. Uh, and he says a marble statue, there it is in church, and it hears many, many sermons, but there is absolutely no response because it's stone, it's cold, it's unfeeling. And that's what we're like by nature. We care more about the latest film or the latest sports fixture than the message of the gospel. Our hearts are stony because they're barren. There's no harvest from a stony desert. There's no harvest from a stony heart. No repentance, no faith, no love, no fear of God, no holiness, no humility. A stony heart is dead. It does nothing. It can do nothing. And that's the heart of the unbeliever. That was your heart and mine before the Lord changed it, as we'll see in a moment. I'm sure you're familiar with the Minotaur story. Uh, the monster, half man, half bull, that was kept inside this vast, intricate labyrinth on the island of Crete. And every year, the city of Athens sent a tribute of seven young men and seven young women to be led into the labyrinth and abandoned as a sacrifice to the Minotaur to avert a plague. Every year this happened. And of course, the, the monster knew every inch of the labyrinth. And the victims were helpless, wandered, lost, until they were found and killed by the Minotaur. And that is a really good way of thinking about our heart by nature. It's an unsearchable labyrinth. It's the domain of this monster that lives within our hearts, the monster of sin. And before the Lord changes us, we are helpless victims, completely in its power. And the more we understand that, well, for one thing, the more we'll give glory and praise to the Lord, won't we, for our salvation. And the more it will drive us to pray. If we really get that this is the heart of the people that we are trying to reach with the gospel, surely it will drive us to pray earnestly as we realize that only a miraculous work of God is going to be able to change the human heart, the fallen heart. And that brings us lastly then to freed but flawed. Our hearts are fallen, but now as believers they are freed but flawed. This is the great miracle of the new birth. The Lord gives his people new hearts. He frees us from the dominion of sin. Ezekiel 36, 26 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is well known to us, isn't it? It's like a heart transplant. The old diseased heart, the old dead heart is removed and it's replaced with a new heart that is healthy and strong and alive. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Such a beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, Of the renewal of our inner nature. The complete transformation of the totality of the inner man that we were thinking about at the beginning. The mind and the affections and the will are all transformed. Every part of us. It's not just the mind. It's not just the affections. It's not just the will. It's not two out of three. It's the whole thing. The whole heart has been renewed. We have new tastes. New joys, new sorrows, new desires, new hopes and fears, new likes and dislikes. We have new views about God and about our soul and about Christ and about salvation and about the Bible and about prayer and about heaven and hell and about holiness. Now that we have these new hearts, we are able to understand with with the mind, the truth of God. We're able to believe it. We're able to receive it. We're able to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Now that we have new hearts, we're able to love God and love his word and his son and his spirit and his day and his worship. We're able to love other believers. We're able to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're even able to love our enemies. Because our affections have been transformed. We're able to obey willingly from the heart because we have a new heart. A heart that is no longer desperately wicked and full of evil and deceitful above all things. So we need to remember that, brothers. Because we can read those verses about the fallen heart and we can apply them to ourselves. And they're not speaking about us. Because we've been given a new heart. And our hearts are not deceitful above all things. And they're not desperately wicked anymore. They were. But the Lord has changed them. And now they're not. We've been freed from the dominion of sin. But our hearts are not perfect. And we need to remember that as well. They are flawed We have a new heart, but it is still a fallen heart. It hasn't yet been glorified, and we are still all too capable of sinning. The dominion of sin has been broken, but sin hasn't given up and left the field and gone away. We are dead to sin, but sin is not dead to us. God has given us a new nature. But sin hasn't changed its nature. It's been conquered. It's been weakened. It's been mortally wounded by Christ. But sin is still deceitful. And it still longs for dominion. That's what sin does. Remember the warning that the Lord gave to Cain in Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at your, at your door and it desires to master you. That's what sin wants. It's like a crouching animal ready to pounce because it wants to master. It wants to uh, dominate. And that's why we have as believers this conflict that rages in our hearts. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Which is all just a very roundabout way of saying that's why we need to guard our hearts. We need to take this very seriously. To go back to the Minotaur illustration, the Minotaur has been dealt a fatal blow. The monster of sin has been dealt the fatal blow, but it's not dead yet. It's still very powerful, and it's angry, and it's dangerous. And the labyrinth is still there, the labyrinth of our heart. The labyrinth is now owned by the king rather than by the minotaur. The, 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 the labyrinth, the heart, is now the king's domain. And he's redesigning it. He's remodeling it into a beautiful home. But this renovation is a slow process. And there are still plenty of places for the monster to hide until it is finally and forever put to death and cast out. And that's where we are as believers. That's where we are as pastors. That's the reality within which we operate. It's realistic, but it's encouraging and helpful at the same time, isn't it? Our situation is not hopeless. Yes, we're able to sin, but we are also able not to sin, which we didn't used to be able to do. We didn't used to be able to not sin. Uh, you may know that uh, saying of John Owen that there were really two great difficulties in pastoral ministry. The first is persuading those who are not Christians that they are under the <coughs> dominion of sin. And the other great pastoral difficulty is persuading those who are Christians that they are not under the dominion of sin. You have a new heart your heart is not what it will be. But thank God it's not what it once was. I don't think that we're likely to fall into the perfectionist Keswick holiness error and overestimate the change that God has brought about in our hearts. I doubt that that is a realistic possibility for anyone here. But perhaps even just on a practical level, our temptation is to underestimate the radical transformation that God has brought about in your heart, your mind, your affections, your will. Freed, but flawed. Brothers, we need to know our own hearts. But we're also called as pastors to shepherd the hearts of our congregations. And so it's vital that we understand this subject. It's vital for our own sakes and it's vital for our people's sakes. What would you think of a GP who couldn't spot the symptoms of heart disease, who couldn't diagnose angina, who didn't understand the basic anatomy of the heart, who didn't know how to treat a heart attack, wouldn't be much of a doctor. But brothers, we are pastors. We are the physicians of our people's souls. And we need to know these 
basic realities. We need to know what the heart is. We need to understand it. We need to know how it works. And we need to know how to guard it so that we can guard our own hearts and so that we can help our people to guard their hearts. May God give us insight and understanding of our own hearts and our people's. Amen. Mark, Mark, do you want me to pray now and then discuss? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you and we praise you as the creator of each one of us. We bless you, Lord God, for how fearfully and wonderfully you have made us and how you have given us both bodies and souls, how you have given us hearts, <coughs> minds and affections and wills that interact with one another, uh, that are complex and intricate and unsearchable. And Father, as we think about our own hearts, as we think about how unsearchable they are, how much there is that we don't understand about ourselves, about our motives, about our feelings, about our thoughts, how we're constantly taken aback and surprised by things that are in us that we just don't understand, both good and evil. So we thank you, Lord God, that you know us that you know our hearts, that you search our hearts, these hearts that you have created. We thank you, Father, for all that you have made us to be by nature, but especially by grace, for how you have given to us new hearts, freed from the dominion of sin. And even though they are flawed, far from perfect, we rejoice, Lord, to think of what one day we will be. Father, we pray again that you will help us in this time of conference together to understand our hearts, uh, to labor deliberately and consciously, intentionally, uh, to seek to understand them, to evaluate them, to know how to help one another to evaluate our hearts and above all to guard our hearts with all vigilance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>